you know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on the podcast, we are privileged to once again talk to Professor John Peavy House, who teaches a variety of courses in international relations and foreign policy for the political science department as well as the La Follette School of Public Affairs. Professor Peavy House is the new chair of the political science department and is also teaching his very popular American foreign policy course this semester. There are always so many fascinating things we could talk to Professor Peavy House about with respect to his research and teaching, but today we remain in a state of not as normal as we hoped on campus, given the recent Delta surge and the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan last month, along with the Taliban's return to power there, has created a humanitarian and political crisis in that country and raised profoundly concerning questions about U.S. foreign policy in that part of the world. Those are some of the topics we hope to talk about today. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Peavy House. We know it's a crazy time on campus for you in your capacity as chair of the department. And given your research and teaching interests, the crisis in Afghanistan has to be something you're monitoring closely as well. Yes, yes. Crazy, crazy times. And as many, uh, you know, as many have pointed out, ironically, coming up on the you know 20th anniversary of 9-11 and uh, our involvement there. And so, yeah, it's just kind of very surreal time in, in foreign policy right now. Well, before we jump into covering all of it that we can today, we were just wondering if you would like to offer any thoughts for the start of the semester here as the new chair of the department, maybe just how you feel about it, how you're expecting it to go as we kind of transition, hopefully out of the COVID world, yeah. the COVID bubble a little bit. Yeah, sure. Yes. So first, I'm you know honored to be to be chair of the department, uh, following in some big footsteps over the years. You know, it's nice. It's wonderful to be trusted by your colleagues. It's obviously a lot of work, but it's it's work that it very rewarding. And so I'm looking forward to that. You know, we've got some new initiatives we're thinking about. You know, on the undergrad side, on the grad side, fundraising side. You know, trying to, but but the short term, as you pointed out, kind of the short term goal is like let's all get back, let's get in person. Let's get this ship rolling again in a healthy, safe way and, you know, make it through the next few months. Uh, and I'm I actually super excited to be back on campus and to see students back on campus. I'm even excited to be, you know, stuck in parking lots waiting to get out, you know, backed up for football games, all that kind of stuff. Uh, never thought I would miss that kind of thing, but I, I do. And, and I'm glad we're back. Gone, gone are the days of parking for free right next to Union Memorial Union. But, you know, it's for the better. That's right. Yes, the halcyon days of parking have come to an end. And so now it's uh, time to pay the piper. So, yes. Yep. Go figure. Well, I know I know what we're all here today and it's it's Afghanistan. So let's just move on to it. First, can you help us out on what we need to know about U.S. history in Afghanistan prior to the 2001 invasion? Basically, you know, help mm-hmm. us know what happened then to know what's happening now. Sure. So, you know, Afghanistan has long been an area, I mean, for literally 
several hundred years. It's been sort of an area that's governed mostly by sort of tribal rivalries, tribal governance, some central government. I mean, there's obviously been a, a capital in Kabul for some time. You know, I'm literally kind of going back and looking at my 9-11 notes to as I looking, talking about this these days. And, you know, I'll give you a quick example. If you look at the map of Afghanistan, there's this finger of Afghanistan that uh, that points out, that kind of sticks up on the upper northeast side, and that was carved out by the British. So essentially their colonial empire, Pakistan, India, et cetera, wouldn't touch Russia, right? And so Afghanistan was always treated as this sort of buffer region, like that sort of, it was there, we knew there was population there, but the British, no, no one historically gave it that much thought. And throughout the Cold War, 50s, 60s, 70s, it was a region that had that had kind of fallen into a little more chaotic rule, again, rivalries among various factions of various groups. This was, again, this was in the Cold War, started attacking the Soviet Union from this area and the Soviets didn't like that. So in the set or mid to late seventies, they tried to install kind of a puppet government in that region, uh, a strengthen a puppet government in that region. And then they were having trouble being stable. So in 1979, the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan. U.S. is not a fan of this. It's in the height of the Cold War. And so the United States, but now the United States was just out of Vietnam in 1977, uh, 75, excuse me. And so there's no move, public move to like intervene in Afghanistan. That was just not on the table. So instead, what the United States did was we began funding some of these groups that had been uh, hostile towards the sitting Afghan government, towards the communist government there. And we funded this money through Pakistan. These groups kind of collectively became known as the Mujahideen. Some of these groups are still around in some form today. As we all know the history, some of them eventually kind of coalesced into Al-Qaeda. You know, so you had this sort of long conflict throughout the 1980s where the Soviets were involved for a better part of a decade and eventually withdraw, leaving behind an unstable government, which eventually falls to the Taliban. And at that point, the U.S. is sort of, we were never in, right? But we were all sort of flowing weapons in through Pakistan. The United States then comes out and kind of stops pinging because at this point, the Soviets are gone. The Cold War's ending. We don't care about it as much anymore. So what's left is this Taliban government, which, as we're all reading about now in history, was you know brutal to many of its own citizens, certainly shut down all forms of women's rights in that country, and of course, harbored a number of groups that were hostile to the United States and to the global system generally, like Al-Qaeda. So, so that's kind of the pre-2001 history, which, so there's not a lot of direct U.S. involvement. There's sort of involvement through the back door of Pakistan. And, and we'd already seen sort of one major power kind of, you know, defeated there over about a 10-year period, which is the Soviets were unable to really, in the end, get what they wanted, which was a stable regime that was very friendly to them. They spent a lot of human and military resources trying to stabilize that country and didn't have much luck. Sorry, very long answer, but that's that's the that's the Cliff Notes version. So speaking of that transition after 2001, some of our student listeners were young. I was newly alive in 2001. Mm-hmm. And when the U.S. first occupied Afghanistan after 9-11, could you give us a primer on why we originally went and then why we have stayed for so long? Well, as you mentioned, right, so the 9-11 attacks really took the U.S. by surprise. You know, in the coming weeks, we'll be in over the 9-11 anniversary, we always hear a lot about that. And it's hard to, I, I actually think, I, this is my second year teaching as an assistant professor teaching the American foreign policy class. You know, we threw out the syllabus that semester. Um, you know, it just took everyone by shock and surprise. And of course, immediately we began looking around for, okay, where did this come from? Al-Qaeda is, is you know, who we determined was the mastermind of these attacks and Osama bin Laden. 
where was Al-Qaeda? Well, of course they had moved around. They were they had units in Sudan. They were sort of around the globe, but their main area and base of operations was Afghanistan. And that they had become friendly with the Taliban government who was protecting them. Uh, and so post 9-11, we figure out, okay, Al-Qaeda is to blame. What do we do? We go tell the Taliban, you've got to do something. The Taliban says, well, we'll think about it. You know, that was the wrong answer. And frankly, you know, counterfactually, even if the Taliban had said, we will turn a couple people over to you, I still think you would have gotten a major conflict in Afghanistan. So that's where we go into Afghanistan. The immediate question at the time was, okay, then what? Right, because very effectively, the United States mobilizes our military. We mobilize mostly small counterinsurgency operations to land there and basically bring a lot of these tribal groups, which were still around from that era, the old era, in concert with one another. We arm them, we coordinate them militarily. We ask them to help us find Al-Qaeda there, and we ask them to help us topple the Taliban, which we do fairly quickly. And right, this is the liberation, the quote, right, the liberation of Afghanistan as we label it. And, you know, mission accomplished. We've got Al-Qaeda on the run. We toppled the Taliban government. And now it's time to set up a functional government there, hopefully a, a liberal democracy that can, you know, make a thriving country while also keeping these ethnic conflicts at bay, religious conflicts at bay, and keep Al-Qaeda, you know, under wraps. From the beginning, everyone knew this would be a difficult, I mean, again, the, the Soviets tried to do it one way, kind of with, you know, iron-fisted way, and that failed. So we're going to try a different way, which is sort of more the American way, which is sort of try to create civil society, bring sort of healthy democracy to that country. And it immediately proves challenging in the sense of all those rival, you know, everyone agreed that the Taliban was their enemy, but then they couldn't agree how to then share power, cooperate, et cetera, when it came time to govern. So the United States struggled with that. In the meantime, we're building these internal security forces. You know, things went well, uh, relatively well, given what I think were kind of low expectations in the first two or three years. We had elections, we had a sitting government that seemed to be doing okay. But always in the background, you know, of people's mind, it's like, you know, this is a country that's never had a sort of quote, Western style sovereignty oriented central governing system, right? That we're kind of, used to in Europe, you know, Western Hemisphere, et cetera, and, and increasing, you know, places, Africa, et cetera. So it's like, okay, how is this going to work? And, and even from the beginning, everyone knew, like, we can't stay there forever, right? We got to leave at some point. So then you ask the exact right question. It's a question we should all be thinking about right now. It's like, okay, when was the time to get out, right? Between September 12th, 2001, and last Monday, when was the optimal time to leave? That's, you know, I think that's the super hard question, you know, and I don't have a great answer to that. There's a lot of different directions we could go here. I mean, one is to say, I think Obama, I think Trump, Biden clearly all thought we should get out. The American public for years has thought we should get out. But it's also never been this thing like Vietnam was where it's like, okay, we got to get out now, right? Like if there are people in the streets marching, like let's get out of Vietnam. No one was ever marching in the streets you know, like, let's get out of Afghanistan. You know, it's like, yeah, probably shouldn't be there, but gosh, you know. Uh, I saw an interesting statistic the other day that during the Vietnam War, I think there were 42 times when there were major speeches or debates by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee about how long we should stay in Vietnam. During our entire 20 years in Afghanistan, that happened once, right? There was a major congressional debate about how long we should be staying in Afghanistan. We just didn't think about it. 
And I think the reason for that is in, in almost every American's mind, we had a good reason for going in, right? The, the story about Vietnam became, well, should we have been in here in the first place? We kind of like slid our way into Vietnam. We never made a decision to go into Vietnam. There are all these different decisions. We sort of dripped by drips and drabs, we got into Vietnam. Like in Afghanistan, we got in and everyone was like, yeah, let's go in. Like 90 plus percent of Americans were like, yep, let's go in. And then you had, everyone had to kind of take this like, well, were we wrong? I don't, and I will say personally, I don't think we were wrong to go in initially, but then it's like, okay, then what? And how long were you gonna give this, this government? How long were you gonna put money and people in there? That's a really a hard question that I hope we start really reflecting on and trying to work through. Before I dip into my next question, I think I have probably a more difficult one to answer. Why is it that the United States felt that they had to, after kind of bringing a sense of kind of peace to the area, that they felt that they had to establish dominance and establish a Western way of kind of government structure? Why, why was there a secondary, we fixed it, now we yeah. have to stay here and fix it more? Right, so they, two ways- They probably to, could have left earlier. Think about, yeah, two ways to think about that. One is, so that, that was certainly argued at, at various points. One argument uh, against that, well, the argument for that would be, look, this is in some ways a form of imperialism, et cetera. One argument against that is that I think we, the United States tried at various points to not just foist on like an American style constitution on them. Like we tried to work with local officials. We tried to work with local leaders to say, okay, what it would be an effective set of governance tools for you, right? And so the flip side is, yeah, we could have left earlier, but then the criticism would have been, well, you made a mess, you have to fix it. And the question is then how do you quote unquote fix it? And is that by bringing on some government, would it have been just turning around and saying, okay, we got rid of the bad guys, bye, figure it out yourself. The fear there was that, what happened last week in the last two weeks would have just happened then. The Taliban was just hiding, right? They were sort of off in the mountains. We thought we were making progress against them. Turns out we probably weren't making as much progress as we thought or, or various other dynamics that we could talk about. And so, right, what in that sort of the way I put the question earlier, what's the optimal time to leave? You know, was there a time at which you could have left? Whether you left a quote unquote democratic government, et cetera, or not, but was there a time you could have left where the Taliban's power was at the bottom, you know, in its nadir, and the, the Afghani government power was sort of at its apex. And that's a matter of political decision-making in the United States. That's a matter of the, what we were being told by the Afghanis themselves. That's also a matter of our intelligence, and what, where we, how we thought the Taliban was strong or not strong, how we thought the Afghani government was strong or not strong, and the, the, um, the Taliban was strong or not strong. And I think one thing history will show is that we had some bad intelligence on several of those, uh, several of those vectors. Definitely. So next, we're going to steal a question here from Ezra Klein at the New York Times. Uh, okay. You probably glanced at it, but this is an audio yes. medium, so I I will restate it for us now. Awesome. Seems like maybe the recriminations over the exact logistics of the withdrawal are being used to distract the more fundamental reckoning the ugly end of our Afghanistan occupation demands. Why were we there for 20 years at all? And just as importantly, why do the Afghan people have so little to show for it? How did we fail so fully that the Taliban was actually strengthened by our presence and the government we constructed, backed, and financed? I will say I'm probably most curious about that second question. 
why do they have so little to show for our for our time there but feel free to approach that however you'd mm -hmm. like it's definitely a couple loaded questions yeah no absolutely uh and good one you know good questions and again things that we need to be able to address i think if there's a lot of reasons why the afghani people have not much to show for the the last 20 years i think some of that has to do with policy failure in the united states part from the beginning nearly from the beginning i'll give you a couple of example one example for sure like and this came out very early on this where this really reached a fevered pitch was in iraq but the same critiques that people were waging about the iraq war applied to afghanistan like multi-multi-fold the bush administration again you can lay let me just be clear here you can lay blame on bad policy at the feet of every administration that has been involved in afghanistan there were significant mistakes made across the board bush obama trump uh biden all across the board so i don't i'm not trying to play politics here many people who are let's say are historically not fans of the bush administration point to the fact that they kind of tried to do this on the cheap right that if you look at things like counterinsurgency guidelines if you look at economic development plans the united states was sort of trying to get away with afghanistan on the cheap we should have had more troops we should have committed more economic resources now not to say we didn't commit a lot but given the geographic size and the population size of that country you know compared to south vietnam i think it's what two three times the population of south vietnam and we had how many more troops in south vietnam than we you know over time and again, we were hoping allies would help, et cetera. The other uh, interesting statistic I read, uh, and this was from someone who admittedly was criticizing the Bush original Bush plan. You know, in Bosnia, where NATO had a significant force that stabilized that region for several years and helped them build the government, we had a program where we essentially gave every Bosnian about $1,500 a year over two or three, maybe even four years. In Afghanistan, that figure is $50. Now, on one hand, cost of livings are very different. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly there's, you know, what we call purchasing power parity differences, but but still, it gives you a sense. Like, we were a lot more invested in rebuilding like Bosnia and Kosovo in some ways than we were Afghanistan, economically speaking. And so, so you could start looking at policy. And again, the way Obama sort of initially came in saying, well, we're going to get out, and then sort of went back and didn't get out, created a set of shifting expectations on the part of locals in Afghanistan. I think it was difficult. So anyway, so I think there's policy. I think the second is what we had to work, you know, our allies in Afghanistan. And if you talk to folks who served in Afghanistan, especially officers who served in Afghanistan, the one thing that will kind of the one refrain you often hear from them is, you know, they enjoyed serving, they, they really prized working with local leaders in Afghanistan, but they always got this sense of sort of like, well, what are you going to do for us today? Right, like what can what can you give us today, America? And and then how are they going to then distribute that, you know, those spoils, versus a sense of community good? Like how are we going to build our community? And ultimately, and this was always the, the fundamental problem with these interventions. If you're an average Afghani, who do you think is going to be around in five years, ten years, twenty years, the U.S. or the Taliban? Right, like. Unless you wipe the Taliban out completely 100%, they're still going to be around. And at some point, the US is going to leave, whether it was five years ago, 10 years ago, last week, two years from now. And so you're playing this calculation game of, okay, whose side are you going to be on and for how long? And when do you switch sides? And this, by the way, goes to this question about, well, why did it collapse so quickly? What some of the, and, you know, some of the, 
thinking I've read from people who were inside as Afghanistan collapsed over the last couple of weeks was that people who had been counted on to sort of defend the regime, like immediately, once they saw the winds shifting, they're gone, they're out, right? They defected to the other side. And again, some of the military officers I've talked to who've served there sort of said they always a little bit had that sense. Like, you're here now in front of me, America. I'm going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm going to take these resources. But I know you're not here forever. And I know that at some point, I value my survival and my family's survival. So, you know, I'll I'll do this now for you. And I'm not going to hurt you. I like you. And if this works out, great. And no offense, like, I think most humans would behave in similar ways if you were being occupied by another country's troops. No matter how magnanimous you thought they were or how nice or or helpful you thought they were, you would always have the sense of, I don't think you're gonna be here to have my back forever. And when you've got candidates from Obama to Trump to Biden saying, yeah, we're getting out, we gotta get out, it's been too long. How much faith ultimately do you put in these in these American forces or these allied forces that are there from a, at, at an individual level? And that I think was just the buy-in that you never saw happen. At least that's my personal read. I don't think you ever got that complete buy-in that in the long run, we expect all these rivalries to go away, the Taliban to go away, right? ISIS to recede after they had sort of charged up a couple of years ago. So I think that's that's sort of the day-to-day calculations people have to make. I'm just curious. I think we're talking about these situations where the US goes in and intervenes and provides aid. I say aid in air quotes, because yeah. some people mm-hmm. would argue that maybe they're not. But is there, you know, you're talking about Iraq and Afghanistan and there are situations like Somalia in the 90s where we go in yeah. and some a lot of people would argue that made it so much worse when we pulled out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there an ethical way to intervene in a situation like this where good calculations are made so that the pullout at the end isn't as chaos inducing, I guess? Mm-hmm. Are, like, are there good examples of maybe not the US, maybe it's a different country that's done this where it turned out more positively than if they hadn't? Well, I mean, I can give you the, the two recent US examples of people don't often, it, right, it's easy to come up with the failures, you know, Vietnam, et cetera. But any you know, people, the World War II examples, people always tried out Germany, Japan, right? those are very different occupations, right, where we literally kind of took over the countries completely and utterly after they had been completely and utterly militarily defeated right? Um, Bosnia and Kosovo are the two interesting cases, right? You had NATO interventions in those countries, and you had sort of occupying forces, significant American occupying forces in those countries, but then left and left behind pretty stable situations. It's a great question. It's a hard question, and I think it points to two things. One is, look, those Bosnia, Kosovo, Germany, Japan, even though we didn't like the previous governments that had been there, they were they were civil societies, they were governments, you know, they were, they had stable systems, they had bureaucratic systems that functioned on an everyday basis. Somalia's rarely had that, you know, Afghanistan's rarely had that. Iraq did have that. And by the way, Iraq, you know, it's been an up and down. I wouldn't place money on it being stable long, long term. But you know, you don't hear you don't see Iraq in the news every day anymore. Right. And because, again, we didn't like Saddam Hussein, it was a brutal, horrible authoritarian regime, but there was a functional civil society. There was, I would say there was a functional bureaucracy there, et cetera. Right. It's like, what are the raw materials you have to build with? Right. So that's one thing. But where your question really is hard, anytime you intervene, and look, Somalia is a great example. If we got involved in Somalia, there was a famine going on in the middle of the civil war. And so we thought, oh, 
we'll drop some food in, right? We'll send in millions of tons of food into Somalia. And what happened? Well, they were using food as a weapon, right? Which is why it was a humanitarian crisis. So we dropped food to one group and not the other group. And so then that like makes the war worse, right? And so you literally, there's certain, certain circumstances where you can't even do humanitarian aid without taking a side, right? And so that goes to your question, right? Are there ways to intervene where this is the ultimate humanitarian dilemma, right? Where you can't not help a side, right? A, a, a pure humanitarianist would say like, well, you've got to get in, be neutral, end human suffering at all costs, et cetera. And that, and, and try not to shift balances of power, et cetera. But like, can you do that in an Afghanistan or a Somalia? I don't think so. Which then raises your question of like, oh, well then when you got to get out, like, what are you leaving behind? Yeah, so it's, it's tough. It'd be a whole other tangent, but we don't have to necessarily spend a whole lot more time on it. I was just curious on your take. All good. Yes. Um, well, you know, look, people can write papers on that in my foreign policy class if they want to come in and do that. Excellent. Maybe I just will. Just hypothetical. Just hypothetical. <laughs> well, and I think you you kind of hit our next question here for you a little bit, which is, you know, the Taliban we know was a very brutal regime and so many in Afghanistan were really happy to see them toppled in 2001 when we did intervene. And so what does it say about American foreign policy though that the government we kind of set up and managed ended up driving some of those same people back to the Taliban 20 years later? But would you say, you already mentioned a little bit that it's just the complexity of it in general and the impermanence? I think that's, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I think, you know, ultimately you're playing the survival game, political and, you know, your life and, you know, where, where are you going to place your bets? You know, just like I think what we found out in the initial intervention was that people who called themselves the Taliban weren't really that committed when we were in there guns blazing. And now that we're leaving guns not blazing, all of a sudden they're kind of like, oh, well, maybe we are telling, you know what I mean? Like these are oftentimes, these may not be in some cases really deep affiliations, right? Given this, you know, kind of the everyday struggles, political and economic struggles in that country, some of these affiliations may be deep, some may not be. And that's the other thing to think about. And here's where I'm a little out over my skis in the sense of, I I don't know that, you know, the ins and outs of sort of the political economy of Afghanistan super well, but, you know, my understanding is sort of the certain regions, especially in the South, are much more poor and undeveloped, underdeveloped, I should say, versus the central versus the northern regions. And so you even have like large scale heterogeneity. So there may be some regions where, yeah, the U.S. was in and, quote, got rid of the Taliban. But it was just people sort of saying, yeah, we're not Taliban anymore. But, you know, it's not like people are there's a voter registry or something where you figure out where people are aligned with. Whereas other cases like Kabul and places that that I did think experienced more economic development, maybe there were slightly more permanent shifts. And those are the people who are upset and trying to get out, you know, and they're like their lives were improved by the US. They're the ones trying to get out or immigrate somewhere, causing this refugee crisis. And so I think you could just have within the country a lot of different, a lot of heterogeneity there about how, how much. How much good was done, where good was done, who felt like good was done amongst the Afghani population. After all is said and done, and I realize that's not accurate either, things are still happening. What would you say were some of the benefits as well as the costs of the U.S.'s continued presence in Afghanistan for those 20 years? There were benefits to this, if you want to call it the war on terror. I I don't necessarily like that. I think just counterterrorism had a lot of benefits. 
from our continued involvement as we were able to continually make inroads onto some of these terrorist groups' networks, find more intelligence on them, figure out how they operated. Frankly, also figured out how deeply Pakistan was implicated in a lot of these things. I mean, that's something else I haven't mentioned yet, but right, this is the other thing to remember. Like, this was an intervention into a country where you had Russia to the north, Pakistan to the east, and Iran to the south. This is not a friendly neighborhood that you're living in. And, you know, when you live in an unfriendly geopolitical neighborhood, you've got pressures from different sides, different groups, and that's tough, you know? Um, so it's not just you've got internal fighting, you've got Pakistan helping one group. Pakistan's saying they're helping us, but we know they're really also helping the Taliban and helping hide out the Taliban, I mean, and, and Al-Qaeda and the Haqqani network. You've got Russia who's sort of smiling at us, grinning the whole time saying, oh yeah, we've been there, done that. Uh, and then you've got Iran who has no great love, by the way, for you know, groups like Al-Qaeda, uh, also sort of sitting there watching and trying to take strategic advantage of the situation. So, you know, while the U.S. was there, I think we, in some ways, created some level of stability with these surrounding actors when it came to Afghanistan. I think it helped us intelligence-wise, again, in counterterrorism. And look, initially, we had a lot of support. Remember, this was the NATO, first time NATO uh, ever enacts its self-defense article. Right. And this is why we had all those NATO forces with us in there it was like NATO voted that this was an attack on NATO 9-11. That's why all these British and German and other forces are in there with us. So in that sense, it did some alliance consolidation there. So I think those were, I mean, those are some of the benefits. The costs were obviously there was a massive human cost. I mean, how many American troops rotated how many times through Afghanistan? Lives were lost, huge material costs. Was it $2 trillion eventually that the bills and, and tallying? You know, until the, you know, until the last soldier who served in Afghanistan passes away in old age, we're still going to be paying the costs of Afghanistan. And then, of course, there's the cost in, to Afghan society, right? And the civilians that died, the, you know, all of the struggles that happened there. But if you want to know cost to the US, I think there's economic costs. There's obviously the military, the human cost uh, of going in there. People are debating a lot also the withdrawal costs, you know, like, you know, NATO is all upset about the U.S. leaving. I find this a little bit much to take, given that ultimately it was really only the Germans and the British who were doing much there. You know, the, the NATO force in Afghanistan for many, many years was called the ISAF, which American soldiers will tell you they referred to as I saw Americans fight, you know, like the, the Allies weren't doing a whole hell of a lot. Again, I think Germans and the British did, did a fair bit, but, you know, this was an American operation. And, you know, now the, the NATO is like, well, how can we count on America for anything now? And it's like, well, we've been asking you that for 20 years. I don't, I don't buy that argument, I will say, but there, there is a potential cost there. There was something the other day I read was like, well, now China is becoming aggressive because they feel like the U.S. isn't going to carry through on our capabilities. This is a long, long, long running debate in, my, in international relations. It's like when states suffer what are considered credibility gaps or blows to their credibility, how do both allies and adversaries perceive that, right? Is it situated, you know, and think about this in your interpersonal life. If, if someone you invite to do something lets you down and doesn't show up, right? Do you think, oh, that person's terrible? Maybe you give it some excuse, oh, they're under a lot of stress, blah, blah, blah. So it turns out we think countries think kind of like this too, right? People who really like the U.S. are probably helping us make excuses. People who don't like the U.S., of course, see this as terrible, but they're going to see it as terrible anyway. So yeah, I think I think the, the alliance and credibility thing is, is real and, and worth thinking through. I tend to put a little less credence on that personally. 
Um, but that's just me. So if we broaden this scenario out to American foreign policy more generally, do you think the U.S. is less likely to intervene in countries we quote unquote don't fully understand, even if there's a provocation of some kind? Or do you think that there's a lasting impact of these post 9-11 wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and in this region in general that just kind of will shape foreign policy? I do. My colleague, uh, Professor Weeks, and I have been doing some public opinion polling on this vis-a-vis China. And we've kind of become interested in, uh, do Americans think that, are Americans willing to spend a lot of blood and treasure to stop China from becoming the global superpower? And as as sort of a highlight of this, one of the things we keep finding is that, you know, there are big partisan differences. Republicans tend to think, yes, we should spend blood and treasure. Democrats think, yeah, not necessarily spend it on you know, domestic programs, et cetera. Um, but one thing almost across the board that everyone agrees on is like no more big interventions, right? Even, and you know, we give them these scenarios like you know, major conflict in South China Sea, should we get involved? It's sort of shocking to me how low the percentage is, even among people who you would normally think might be more hawkish on foreign policy. Like they're willing to spend money. They're willing to rattle the saber. They're willing to build alliances. But intervention, sending in lots of troops, people are, I think, still gun shy from this. We saw this after Vietnam. We called this, we labeled this the Vietnam syndrome, right? That for really between pulling out of Vietnam and Panama in 1989, there were no major US military interventions. Maybe Grenada, maybe a little bit in Lebanon, but there were no really significant military operations. And so I wonder if we're not now in sort of this period, I think we've been here for a while now, we're sort of after Iraq, after Afghanistan, especially after the way Afghanistan ended, are we gonna now see sort of an extended period where it's not that we're less active overall, it's just that the tools that we have are a little more constrained, no more big interventions. We're intervening now, right? I mean, the US is active in places like Mali, other places like that. We're just not in there with tens and tens and hundreds of thousands of troops, right? And so I think the, the model of intervention changes if we have to go in. Yeah, the model of intervention definitely shifted away from the guns ablazing version. It's interesting right. to and see how that know. change. Exactly, and it's then it's hard, you know, as a political scientist, I think, okay, well, what would make that go back? You know, and you know, you hate to think these types of things, but it's like not that you would necessarily want that to come back, but it's like, okay, what are the scenarios by which you can see a major, super significant U.S. military operation again? It's like, you know. North Korea firing a nuclear missile into Japan, you know, uh, major mobilization of Chinese uh, Navy against Taiwan. You know, you start to play these things through. It's like maybe, although gosh, even there, again, like we were asking these scenarios of, you know, these big samples of American, the American public, like, would you defend these islands from our, we have allies who have islands in South China Sea. The scenario is China invades them. Are you, we willing to go do things with the the U.S. Navy. It's like the vast majority were sort of saying, yeah, no, not really. And so, and again, I think as you both kind of hinted at, like, I think this is a lot about war weariness at this point. Again, even amongst folks that I think 20 years ago would have said, yes, like, let's do that. I just think there is a little bit more general war weariness. I mean, you sort of saw this a little bit with the Trump administration, right? I mean, Trump was very much like, no more nation building, no more big interventions for the point of these types of things. And 
and had a lot of support amongst Republicans. And I mean, you think back to the Reagan era, Reagan would have never, I don't think, said those types of things. You know, he would have been like at the center of the Republican party saying like, you know, we need to be strong and there are places where we need to intervene where even if it doesn't look like it's exactly in our interest, we, it's in our interest because the Soviets are there. You know, people are like, yes, that's right, let's do that. And I just don't see that kind of rhetoric emerging in any way. It's hard to imagine what the issue is that people are gonna rally around to do that in either political party. I think we're also gonna see an issue of generational forgetfulness. I know, mm-hmm. I know in the past like few weeks, I've already begun to see like YouTube videos and TikTok videos like 9-11 explained. We know you were three when it happened. Here's, here's why everyone cares. So I don't know if, I don't know if we're going to, if we're going to see that same interest from like this generation, the next generation in that That's a good, yeah. I, interventionism. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I wonder. And I also wonder, you know, some a reporter asked me the other day about the pullout. They're like, well, you know, how many generations will this pullout be remembered for? Like, I don't know. Like, we all seem to have the, you know, attention span of gnats these days. Like, maybe? I I said, my hypothesis was that, that sort of people my age, slightly younger, older, will remember 9-11 more readily. 10 years from now, people will still remember 9-11 more readily than they remember the pullout of Afghanistan. That doesn't mean they'll necessarily forget the pullout of Afghanistan. Yeah, but it's a good, like this whole historical memory of conflict, I think it's fascinating. And like, who remembers what and why? It really is. And we're watching it happen in front of us, which is the funniest thing. Mm-hmm. But you touched on um, criticism. So there's been obviously a lot of critiques of Biden's, administ- his administration's mm-hmm. withdrawal. Yeah. Lots of, lots of things being said, lots of feelings. But what's your take on it? Could it have mm-hmm. been less messy? Was there a possible way to be more graceful about it? So first of all, I think it's worth pointing out some of the critics of Biden, I think are just sort of grasp, grasping at anything they can because they don't like Biden, fine, fair enough. But let's separate two things. This question of should we have gotten out and how we get out? And I, I think people who are arguing, oh, we shouldn't have gotten out. I, I'm not there with them. Like, I think we should have gotten out. I think we should have gotten out sooner. And frankly, my own opinion is the reason we weren't out sooner was because neither Obama or Trump wanted exactly what happened last week on their watch. I think what happened partially was inevitable, not completely, but I think partially it was inevitable. And I think that because I think we had a vast overestimate of the status of the Afghanistan security forces. And, you know, if you, the intelligence community reports, the military reports were all like, well, they're not great, but they'll hold up for a while. They can hold up. They can kind of cover our flank as we get out. You read the Afghanistan Inspector General's report, which is an American report on the state of these forces, and it paints a completely different picture. Like that we these folks will collapse in a heartbeat once they think we're out of there and that this is gonna be ugly. And that's exactly what we saw. You know, at, at its peak, there were supposed to be 400,000 Afghani troops stabilizing the country and those, and we know there were double counting. People were just turning in fake surveys about how many troops they had. You know, they were selling off equipment to the black market. Like it was a mess. And I hope that's something that gets a lot of attention. And that's more than just a Biden issue. It's a partial Biden issue, but it's a a more general issue about our intelligence and what we thought of that. You know, that's the, if one wants to excuse Biden, it's, this was some version of this was inevitable and that's why it hadn't happened yet. The anti-Biden or more critical of Biden says like, even given that, 
even knowing that there were people telling you this could be a mess, you still didn't do enough, right? And you should have tried to phase it out. My impression, as I, again, sort of out in, on my own here, my sense is that to do it better would have required kind of a re-intervention, a short re-intervention, right? Where you're sending back 50,000 some odd troops, 40,000, whatever that number is, a not small number of American troops to facilitate getting out. Now, what happens when you send back those 40 to 50,000 troops? Well, remember ISIS-K, right? And so ISIS-K starts taking pot shots at those troops. And then you get, hey, why are we back there? I thought we were getting out, right? And so, you know, now hopefully those troops could have been prepared enough to cover the flank as we left, but who knows? That's, the, that's something I'm sure they discussed, right? We could re-intervene, but then you're just inviting even bigger attacks right, on our troops and even more political blowback. And then it's still the same, it's still the same argument. Oh, we can't get out competently, right? We sent these troops, now a bunch of them are dead. Oh my gosh, it's incompetence, right? Versus don't send more troops, know it's gonna be a mess and be, and be you know, declared incompetent, but with fewer American lives on the line. Again, that's sort of painting a very kind picture to Biden. I also just think, you know, like, yes, there just could have been flat out better logistics to get out like and i think that was a failure of, of planning I, it seems like what i've been hearing reading different opinions and listening to podcasts is that there just was no good option though would you mm -hmm. agree i agree i think there were no good options there i think there could have possibly been better options but not options without risk right all options have risk and you have to think about that and you know, what kind of risk are they trying to minimize versus maximize? You know, I think it is incredibly sad and unfortunate that I think they chose to maximize the risk for Afghanis and non-military citizens there. But I think that was the, the risk they chose to maximize was on that group. But had you gone in with a larger footprint, you then are increasing the risk against American troops. And is that the risk you want to be maximized? I mean, yeah. This is why presidents turn gray within six months of being in office. Like that's you're literally deciding who lives and who dies, and that's yeah, that's hard. And and ultimately, obviously, we'll never know, right? These counterfactuals we'll never know. But um, but no alternative strategy was without some risk. That is for sure. This idea that you just could have planned a little bit better and it all would have been fine, maybe. But man, these aren't dumb people. Like let's face it, like. You know, folks in the JCS, the, the Joint Chiefs, these are not dumb people, right? They've been down this block before. We know Afghanistan. We've been there 20 years. Did some things take us by surprise? I think so. But even given that, you know, it's all about which risks you want to minimize and maximize. So do we know how much Biden will pay politically in the short term and long term for this decision? Mm, that's a great question. Short term, he's clearly paying a cost. Um, you know, I think there's been a, a confluence of several events. Afghanistan is one. It's so funny, you know, I find this fascinating. Um, for those of you who would ever take my foreign policy class, we debate this a lot. Like, does the public care about foreign policy, right? And, and the best we know is that the public kind of keeps it in the back, in the rear view, unless it's a war, in which case maybe they care a little more. But the general view is that, right, the public cares about foreign policy when it's salient, or when is it salient, right, during conflicts. So. I'm never convinced that presidents pay much of a long-term cost or reap much of a long-term benefit 
for foreign policy. Short run, yes. I think yes. And I think Biden has certainly lost some support over what's happened in Afghanistan. You know, you never know. Again, there could be another disaster, unfortunately, in another five weeks, five months. It's a long time. And, and, you know, does this then translate into a shift in votes in the midterm? Like, that's what everyone's going to think about. Like, how this, are there sort of reverse coattail or, you know, bad coattail effects in the midterms? Like, do Democrats pay a price for this, uh, for Biden's unpopularity in the midterms? Possibly, but again, the counterfactual is, had this gone well, would, you know, there still would have been, you know, we always know the president loses support at the midterms after they're elected. And so is it going to be worse than it would be? Maybe. Could be. Appreciably worse? I don't know. Again, I'm just always skeptical that foreign policy drives many people's vote. I think where if the Republicans want to take advantage of this, they have to play the competence card, right? right? That like, and this is what the Democrats kept trying to do to Trump, right? Like, he doesn't know how to make decisions, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they're trying to do this to Biden, too. It's like Republicans trying to do this to Biden. It's like, he doesn't know how to make decisions and competence, blah, blah, blah. So in that sense, it plays into that narrative. But, you know, how many people are going to go into the election next November and be like, oh, yeah, I'm voting on it because Afghanistan looked bad. I'm going to vote. I'm going to change my vote as to what it otherwise would have been. I'm a little bit skeptical of that. I think people who are privy, I pray to that argument, were already going to probably switch their votes or vote the way they were going to vote. Absolutely. I think there's so much more that we could absolutely go into there, but just in the interest of time, we want to know if there's anything else that we haven't talked about yet that you think is really important for our listeners to hear. Or you could also plug your class that you're teaching this semester if you want. Oh, sure. If you find these issues interesting, we talk about all these things and more in PolySci 359, uh, American Foreign Policy. So come if you love foreign policy, come take 359. No, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, a lot of ground to cover. There's still a lot of uncertainty. In many ways, you know, this is sort of a tragic end to a conflict. The phrase I've been using when I talk to people is sort of that Afghanistan is the necessary failure, right? Like, everyone agrees we needed to go in, but we also, everyone kind of knew it wasn't, I personally never thought it was going to end particularly well, how good or bad. I mean, great. I, everyone wanted it to, just not a lot of history of stable institutions, history of stable governments, the policy choices we were making across four different administrations, like a lot had to go right. A lot had to go right. But again, that said, like, unlike Vietnam where people sort of look back and say, should we have even ever have done that? I don't think we'll look back historically at Afghanistan and say the same thing. I think in Afghanistan will be like, yes, we, we, you know, yes, some people will say no and disagree with that. I think the vast majority of folks who lived through 9-11 will say, yep, we should have gone in. And then what, like, again, between September, you know, whatever, mid-September 2001 and, you know, August 2021, where's the inflection point there and how would you have found a better one? We'll end on a bit of a lighter note here. We know that you're a musician and you love all kinds of music. Do you have any recommendations for songs that can keep us sane going into the fall semester? Oh, man. Uh, musician. I hope you were using air quotes uh, when you said that. Um, well, it's an audio medium. I, I could. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, what, are, what have I been listening to? Okay. Here's what I've been listening to lately to keep myself sane is chairs, department chair. This awesome band, Hiatus Coyote. 
uh, kind of really fun, fun band. Um, I listened to a lot of Ray Charles over the summer. Like really got it. Like there's obviously this biopic about him from like five, six years ago now. It was so, so narrow. Like he was so expansive in his music. It was amazing. And I was kind of reviewing some of his stuff. What else? New Jobis. You know them? He's a, a Japanese DJ who like really likes to sample like bebop, 50s, 60s bebop, American bebop jazz. Really good. Um, I was taking my oldest kid around to college tours this summer. We were driving late sometimes. And I have, I have to admit, I grew up listening to a lot of Metallica. And just to stay awake, it's like I put on the Metallica. And we were just like headbanging down the road. So I'm kind of all over the place these days. That's how I keep myself sane. It's like, what random thing can I put on the turntable or call up in Spotify or whatever? So whatever to make the time go by quickly, whatever to right. make your to brain feel my mind into something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The oh, hiatus yeah. coyote call out was fantastic. I'm a huge fan. So, and I feel like not many people listen to them. That's great. Oh, yes. I'm a big, I kind of happened on it by accident, but yeah, totally. The British, uh, a female British singer named Jane Weaver, who kind of, it was one of these like, if you like, you should check out kind of things. And so, if you haven't heard Jane Weaver, very, very cool stuff, sort of electro pop, electro folk Perfect. stuff. So, we are coming up on the end of our time today, unfortunately, but this has been amazing. And thank you so much for taking time out of your day to meet with us. And we're really hoping to be able to check with you again sometime relatively soon. We know that it's going to be crazy, but we wish you the best of luck with this semester also. Thanks so much. Good luck to you and good luck to all the students out there starting. And we're going to get through this this fall. It's going to be great. We're going to be in person. And yes, we're going to see human beings again. So it's a great thing. Thanks for having me. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.